Yeah, and the, and the funny thing is, is um, because obviously when, when we first started out, it, it seems like a pretty niche software, and it is a pretty niche software. And uh, we always say, ah, oh, we're just six months out from building, you know, all the main features we want. And every and six months later, we say the exact same thing. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we are here with Loic Alix Brown. He's the CEO and co-founder of Flick, among a couple of other portfolio companies that they're they're running. And they are a small, scrappy team who have successfully gone from negative forty thousand dollars to over sixty k in monthly recurring revenue in just a handful of months with just a handful of people. So we're going to talk today about how user research built to purpose for a small lean team trying to really learn as fast as possible can be a great growth lever. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm re really excited to, uh, to, to be on here and be able to share some of the experiences I've had over the last 12 to 18 months. Fantastic. And we got Jay here too. Yeah, I feel like um, so much of the advice you get around user research is contextual. And I think like that small struggling team is a context that maybe doesn't get covered enough. So it should be cool to dig into. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So how many companies go from, right, from seed funding or three people to the next stage? Not very many. And so user research can be such a, an important tool in really getting started at all. Yeah. And when you get to the next stage, like you kind of have the luxury of like having a little bit more breathing room. And so that's when people publish, mm -hmm. you know, how they do things and their right. practices, but they're at a different maturity. And when you're in the early stages, just trying to survive, it's usually harder to, to pull your head up and like share what you're doing and stuff. So I think you just don't get as many of those stories. Yeah. So thanks for pulling your head up and spending <laughs> some time with us. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Yeah. yeah, I know you mentioned you're in the middle of a bunch of launches. What do you have going on right now? Yeah, so we, we have probably one of the biggest launches to date on Flick coming up in the next few um, weeks. We've, we've sort of been actually beta testing it over the last three or four weeks. And basically, Flick's a, a search engine, and this is bringing an analytical side to that and allowing users to sort of track their progress and sort of closing that loop where people can actually get to see the impact that our search engine and the results they get from that give to their social media and more particularly their Instagram account. Great. And, and yeah, tell us for those who haven't used, you do, you're like a search engine for hashtags for Instagram. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So the idea is just like in SEO or search engine optimization, you need to target the right keywords to reach your audience and certain keywords are harder to rank on than others. It's the same for hashtags on Instagram. If you want to reach your audience, um, you need to use relevant uh, hashtags, but you also need to use ones that aren't too competitive for the size of mm. your account. That's really clever. And so Flick helps you basically find those in a few minutes for your different posts. So I was going to say, uh, Aaron kind of teased it, you know, at the start of the journey within Flick, you guys were in debt, trying to figure out how to make it work. Like, where did you start? Like, that feels like one of those things that's like probably an overwhelming situation to be in. How did, how did you determine like what you needed to learn or, or how to learn it and, and move forward? Yeah. So at that time, I knew nothing about product management. I didn't know anything much about SaaS. And I was actually taking care of everything around marketing, basically taking care of our client accounts. And prior to that, I had three or four years um, where I was growing Instagram accounts myself. 
and I gathered a bit of experience and sort of like insight into like the pains that you could get when doing that. And actually, one day, one of our clients, existing clients, asked us, you know, oh, it'd be so cool if we could find hashtags really quickly. It's such a pain to do. And one of well, our CTO and myself, we looked at each other and I was like, you know what, that's something that a lot of people are going to want to do. And that was our complete hypothesis at, at the time. I knew I would have loved that tool when I was doing all this Instagram stuff, but I had no idea whether other people would. And so we actually, over the weekend, built a prototype where you would have to input code into that prototype for it to work. So there was like no, there wasn't actually like a f- sort of front facing application. You put in code and then sort of this data visualization third party tool would sort of show the data. And I got on a few calls with people that I knew uh, in the space and they seemed to validate my hypothesis. And then two weeks later, we launched a minimal, really minimal viable product, looked absolutely awful. Uh, you can barely do anything. And we sort of never looked back from there. Yeah. I love that you, the first user test you did was with something without a UI at all. Tell us more, like, how did you, people talk about MVPs a lot, right? So you're talking about a pre-MVP or the, you know, the, the truly minimum, but how did you decide yeah. what was sort of sufficient <laughs> for people to get it and to validate, okay, there's something here? Yeah. So I think I think at that time it, it was uh, the first thing when getting on these calls was mapping out you know the, the key questions and what we thought the value would be in the product and to us it was could we demonstrate that this tool would save time and could we demonstrate that this tool would show you suggestions that you could never think of and then obviously we had hypotheses around what other sort of nice to haves would be cool to include. But when we first got on these calls, we all we wanted to do is see whether or not, firstly, those two pain points were big enough for everyone and whether a slightly neater version of the pre-MVP we were showing were going to solve that. And it turns out that they did. And um, from then we decided, all right, let's 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 spend a week or two developing something that we can actually sell. And we, and we launched uh, the MVP a couple of weeks later. We actually made people pay for it straight off the bat. It was very cheap. So it was £10 a month. <laughs> Or which is roughly $12. Yeah, we just found one partner to, to promote it. One of the people I actually got on the call with who said, oh, I really like this idea. I think my audience might really like it. And we got 200 users in our first month. And we sort of then started um, doing some more u- proper user testing and um, taking it all the way to 18 months later and what it is now. That's awesome. I, I really do. I want to echo what Aaron said. I, I love the fact that you started with the functional ugly prototype. I think people always jump to design tools and what can we make and, and kind of mock up and make clickable. But really, like in what you all did, right, is starting from what do we need to learn? Okay, we need to learn this. What's the best, cheapest way to learn it? And in this case, you know, something that functioned sounded like a much better way to learn than something that looked great. And I think that just that step gets overlooked so often. So that's that's really cool that you were able to find that approach. What what happened from there? Like now you actually have users. Did you mostly just talk to them or did you keep going out to, to other people for feedback? Yeah, that, that, that was really interesting. From that point onwards, when, when we started getting users, there was actually a period of two months where we were still an agency and the agency wasn't going well. But we sort of were like, okay, this is cool. Let's see how many people actually stay on this platform because you know it's a search engine. We don't know how sticky this sort of thing is before we devote any more time to it. And obviously, this isn't something that you know I, anyone else should do. This is just because we still had this other business running and this was sort of like a side project within that business. 
And we actually let it run for, for a couple months and, and people stayed, obviously not everyone, but out of the 200 users, a few months later, we still had around 140, which for a two week old MVP is pretty decent. And it was only then two months or three months later where we realized, you know what, this has some long-term value that we said, let's not do this agency anymore. Let's fully focus on building this out. Um, and from that point onwards, we really started looking into how we could improve the product and getting on calls with users. To start with, we were we had no brand. It was We tried to reach out to people not using the product, but that was very hard. People weren't willing to give up a half hour of their time, 45 minutes of their time to get on a usability call or a user interview. But instead, what we did is we found the people who loved our product and we focused on them to start with. And we sort of asked them, you know, what is it about our product that you love? And we try to double down on those aspects. So, you know, initially people were like, wow, this is awesome. Firstly, it's very quick. And secondly, it's great to see all the stats. And I love the fact that we can filter the results in this particular way. And what we did then is the, the next iteration, we'd focus on making those even better until we got to the point where we repeated this process very often. So you'd get on a call, you'd figure out what um, a user really likes, then you'd go away uh, and the product managers and designer would work on it, work on a potential mock-up solution, go back to the user, run a usability test and do that until the usability was good enough. And then that would be sent over to the developers and built. And that's how we ran for roughly six months or so. Yeah. At that point, yeah, we were releasing something to the users every probably 10 days, something new would be in app. So it was really sprinting towards getting to a place where we were happy with the product. So how are you? It sounds like you, you're talking to your, your most active customers. Is that right? Or That's correct. Yeah. And how are you um, deciding what to build from the feedback they're giving you? Are you? Is it largely you know, new features that they say would be interesting? Or you're hearing you know, the pains they're describing and coming up with features on your own or fixing usability issues or something else entirely? How are you kind of deciding from those conversations what to do next? So this was still obviously at the very beginning of our journey. And we um, had in mind our users were going to be these Instagram experts mm -hmm. that needed a tool to really make their streamline their process and make it easier for them. And with that in mind, we'd speak to these users and we, we, we were quite narrow minded. And I slightly regret that at the beginning of our journey, we'd ask, what's the most important thing? Okay, awesome you want to save more time. And then we'd go back to the drawing board and then we'd think, okay, how can we save them even mm -hmm. more time? And what that did is the improvements we made in those first six months were very narrow in, in the sense of the problems we were addressing. Mm -hmm. We felt like our product addressed those problems to a good extent, but we wanted them to, to fully address those problems, which made us sort of ignore all the signs that actually a large number of our user base wasn't this Instagram expert that needed more time, but were actually brand new Instagram users. And we sort of found that out the hard way. It was only when we sort of stepped back and we realized, oh, our churn's not going down. Why is this happening? We started interviewing mm -hmm. less active users and trying to get them on the phone or people who've canceled and trying to get them on the phone. And that was a massive switch in, in the way we decided on what to build and sort of the direction of the company and the success and speed at which we grew. And were you... Like primarily le leaning on like these qualitative conversations, or were you also at this point as the business started to grow, layering up, laying in other tools like you know event tracking 
or surveys or other kind of quantitative analysis? Or was it all like, let's just talk to people? So going into building a product and not not knowing anything about sort of product management or anything like that, the first thing I did is I read a ton of books around product management. So Lean Startup and, you know, every every lean book there is. And and obviously every single one of them, you know, says obviously talk to customers, but there's also this quantitative side of analyzing the data. And what actually happened is there were a few months where we got obsessed with analyzing this data that we became quite slow in the way we developed because we're a startup, we've got maybe five, 600 users at the time to get statistical significance on anything takes absolutely ages. And so what we actually decided to do as a, as a company is we do track um, data. We, we tracked data using Amplitude since the very first day we actually launched um, the MVP. But we stopped relying on the data to make decisions. So instead, we did heavily re- rely on these quantitative interviews. And to me, I feel like when you're first getting started, it's great to keep an eye on the data to see if you know something's drastically changed. But having to have statistical significance for every decision you make is just is going to slow you down in iterating and getting to that product market fit versus trying to get on as many interviews with your customers as possible, especially if you're a startup with low amounts of, of customers. Yeah, absolutely. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more. So we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. Going back to what you're you're saying before about this switch from talking to kind of your, I don't know how you looked at it in terms of, you know, your top sort of 10% of users or, or whatever, but going from that to casting a wider net in terms of your lower usage users. Tell me more about that and, and what that unlocked for you in terms of, you know, product discovery, in terms of growth. Yeah, no, absolutely. So at that point in time, I think we, we were sitting at around 600 users or so. So our hypothesis was all of these users are, you know, they've, they've come onto our tool because they're on Instagram all the time and they just want to do this quicker. Um, and that was the biggest mistake we, we've, I think we've made in terms of uh, a wrong hypothesis. It turns out that around 80% of our users are actually people just getting started with Instagram. And so the way we found that out, two, two things. The first thing we did is we decided to, every time someone canceled, we'd send out an email get, and try and get them on a call, basically get as much feedback as possible in a very manual way to start with because we were looking for qualitative feedback. And then secondly, when we started getting more traffic to our landing page, we switched up our sign-up flow to try and get information there. Um, so when people sign up, they answer a few key questions, but it's allowed us sort of to segment um, our users uh, going forward. So for example, we'd ask, you know, what's your experience level on Instagram when you sign up? And that's also unlocked a lot of insight because when we do look at analytics, we can segment them based on that. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Because, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom, right, is to, you know, you want to be looking at your best customers and serving them and you can't serve everybody all the time. 
But you're finding that, well, actually there's this other, you know, use case of a lot of our users. And are they at this stage, are they all paying that same, you know, 10 pounds a month or are your heavier users paying you more or how's that breakdown? Yeah, so uh, the average revenue we get per user now is around 12 to 13 pounds a month currently. So we went sort of three three stages of pricing. We started off with just one plan, 10 pounds a month. That was our beta plan. And then when we returned to the app a few months later, as I mentioned, we, we actually changed that and we had three plans. One was 10 pounds, one was 15 pounds, and one was 30 pounds a month. And that worked well. People were signing up. There was no issue there. But once we started collecting feedback on cancellations and speaking to users who cancelled, we quickly realized that the people using Flick weren't necessarily Instagram professionals who were making money off the platform yet, or they weren't brands. They were these solopreneurs, these content creators. And through that insight, we realized, you know, these people aren't making a lot of money on Instagram, if any, and they can't justify, even if it saves them so much time, they can't justify um, spending, you know, 30 pounds a month on, on this tool. And so we actually dropped our prices. So now we've got three plans, one's uh, five pounds a month, and the next one's uh, 10 pounds a month, and the top one is 14 pounds a month. We do have a plan for agencies, which is 60 pounds a month, um, but not many people are on it. Um, I think maybe around 1% of our user base is on that plan. Uh, what we have done, though, to to counteract that is we've started to diversify our product line and have bolt-ons and add-ons and sort of things that people who are really getting the most out of our product and who are making money can upgrade in-app to sort of counterbalance that change in our base pricing plans. So the, the that entry tier, that five pound tier, those people that you realized were largely not, you know, making money off Instagram and were more amateurs. And so what did you learn about them and how to provide for, for their use case that was different than what some of that earlier segment was looking for? Yeah. So so the the insight around all this and that particular plan came in around September. So September 2019. And what we realized is because we'd focused on making our product great for experts, people who knew nothing about Instagram sort of got lost and had no idea or, or struggled to understand the value of our product, but also just the, the, the usability from the usability side. It was just very hard to use for someone who's not very familiar with the terms that are on Instagram. And what that led us to do is actually design a whole um, different set of tools and sort of onboarding for these users. So from September onwards, one of our actually one of our OKRs was to build and redesign the whole onboarding and add features where necessary to make Flick better for people who aren't Instagram experts and to basically get them to that activation in an easier uh, way. And to give you an example, one of the things uh, we built is before then, when you searched, uh, you could only see data in a table format or in a graph format, which both are quite unintuitive if you're not very familiar with Instagram. Now, what we've done for, uh, for our users is we've tried to take as much of a decision-making process from a beginner as possible while leaving adequate amounts of information for someone more advanced to sort of make their own decisions. And we've done that in the way we display data, um, in the tool tips, and in other general tweaks uh, in the UI and, cool. and onboarding. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good insight. Uh, what I was gonna say is my, my own curiosity here has gotten the best of me of like, who are these people that are Instagram amateurs 
that are also signing up for like an Instagram optimization tool. Like it's that that persona. I'm like, how are they finding you? I'm very fascinated by this. <laughs> These are hashtag influencers. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. So it's a very good question, and we we have the same ones. Well, there's two two main categories of people. You'll you'll have your entrepreneurs trying to build a personal brand, but they haven't made it yet. So they're they're trying to find a way to build their personal brand, and they have not enough money to pay for for paid advertising so like facebook ads or instagram ads or youtube ads they don't have that money so they're looking for a cheap alternative um, and hashtags provide that uh, for them and the the second the second one is actually photography photographers mm. we have a ton of photographers who sign up to our platform and who want to gain that little bit of extra exposure and usually they're looking for um, to target a particular location and really sort of make a name for themselves within a very very sub niche uh, and hashtags are the perfect tool to do that. If you use you no know, Instagram ads, it's very hard to target a, a specific subcategory. Using hashtags, that's all they are, really. They're, they're, they're communities within communities. And if you leverage and use the right ones, then it's very easy to pinpoint. Mm, that makes sense. I actually, uh, I oddly follow a lot of photographers on Instagram. And um, it is a cool way to find people's like, you know, certain camera hashtags and other stuff. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm I'm like side going down a rabbit hole of hashtags right now. I'm looking for flick and now I'm on hashtag flick, which is not at flick. It's a totally different thing. Um, but periodically, I'm sure you and, and there's a little definitely a tangent, but we'll get we'll get back to it. So I'm sure you've seen this like debate, right? On like our hashtags over, right? Like the in marketing, the the popular one is like email is dead, long live email, right? I think, you know, hashtags got a bad rap where people use like 37 Absolutely. of them and you know, it's just like are you kidding me? It's like hashtag mania. But I imagine you have like, you know, some hot takes on hashtags. <laughs> what have you learned about hashtags through your research yeah. that I don't know, which might be interesting? Yeah. Um, so I feel like there was a period on Instagram back when I was growing my accounts, so around two years ago or so, two to four years ago, where you could hashtags were irrelevant. And that's because there were so many other ways of leveraging the, the Instagram algorithm uh, to give you a, a sort of a basic example. If you got lots of big accounts to like your content, then all of their followers would actually mm -hmm. see your content on their explore feed in the Instagram app, which meant that you could be a brand new account. And if you've done this and know the right people, your first post could reach 200, 300,000 people. And that's how people used to grow. Um, all of these sort of niche pages that you see posting about cars or, or travel content, all that sort of stuff. They used to grow in that way. And that sort of died down. Instagram caught onto it and they flag accounts that do it now. And people have been looking for an alternative. And what's happened is hashtags have actually started to sort of take over and, and become that established alternative where beforehand, if you were to reach 50 people through your hashtags, you were doing really well. Now we have some of our users who on a single post reach 150,000 hmm. people from their hashtags. So um, for for content creator or photographer, you know, reaching an extra 150,000 people, essentially, firstly, organically, and secondly, pretty much for free, when you'd have to pay something like, you know, 100 pounds or 150 pounds for Facebook ads mm -hmm. is is invaluable to them. And Instagram have been promoting hashtags heavily in their features. So you mm. can now follow hashtags, you see hashtag content in your feed. And that sort of caused this sort of migration back to what was uh, originally the only mm. discovery mechanism in Instagram when they first launched. 
Yeah, following hashtags is great. I do that for a lot of like local stuff near me, and I always find cool stuff going on that way. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite hashtag fun fact is um, if you put them in title case, so you're you know capitalizing each word, uh, yeah. screen readers can pronounce them correctly. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, it's an accessibility thing that has come around since they've become so ubiquitous now. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, capitalize your hashtags, folks. All right, so back to it. So, okay, so we're on this journey, right? We're in debt. Now we're making some money. We're talking to only our power users, but we've unlocked this whole new group of, I imagine is like a bigger market, like, you know, people who can benefit from hashtags that are not Instagram experts versus those who are already experts. So now the product follows follows this new segment. Um, and now we have, you know, different prices and packages. Where are we now? What's kind of the most recent iteration of things and, and how user, user research got you there? So yeah, right now, what we're working on is basically helping users actually understand which individual hashtags worked versus the ones who didn't. There's no tool that allows you to do it on the market right now. The feedback we were getting was, this is all great, but it's really hard for me to tell whether your tool is providing me value other than saving me time because Instagram don't give me the mm -hmm. insights as to which hashtags are working and which ones aren't. And so in, the, in that sense, there was nothing to sort of close the loop and sort of show people the value that Flip gave them. And uh, the way we got that feedback was, um, firstly, we, we built a multi-step cancellation flow. Um, and what that is, is you know how you get on these, um, on a lot mm -hmm. of SaaS platforms, they ask you why you leave when you click on cancel. And sometimes they, you have to fill it in before you can cancel. Well, what ours is, is essentially the same thing, except you can ask follow-up questions within it. So say someone says, I, I find Flick too expensive and that's why I'm canceling. Well, the next question would be, okay, so why do you find Flick too expensive? Is it that uh, you, you can't afford it right now? Is it that you weren't using it enough or was it that you're not getting enough value from it? And we, we did that with sort of all the main reasons uh, behind people canceling. And one that kept coming up was, I don't actually know if this tool is helping me with my end goal, which is reaching more people on Instagram. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was user interviews. At this point, we, we had enough users for me to be able to, to send out emails um, and get uh, 30, 40 calls booked in the next month um, with users. And so what, what I did there is we, we had a bunch of um, job-to-be-done interviews um, with our users where I'm trying basically to figure out the job that they're, they're, they're trying to do um, on Instagram. And every time we asked a user, it would always revolve back to, I'm trying to reach more people. And it became very apparent that although we were helping people do that, they couldn't be certain of that. And that led us to sort of going back to the drawing board. And over the last three months, we've been working on building this whole suite that allows people to sort of analyze their account and the performance um, of each hashtag, which is what we're going to be launching in the next few weeks. Throughout the journey, like when you've needed to talk to people, has it been like on an as needed basis? Like there's something we got to figure out. So let's grab, you know, 10 people and talk to them as soon as we can. Or did you ever get into a cadence of, you know what, it's easier if we just try to talk to five people every week or every other week, and then we just don't have to scramble or like, what was that? What did the actual like logistics look like? So originally it was, it was completely that it was, do we need to know something that we don't know currently? Yes. Okay. So let's send an email and get on calls. Now where we're doing a lot more usability calls and we're working very closely with design um, and we've switched actually from 
building iterations through coding to building iterations through design with the designers, we actually have a regular cadence. So every Thursday, we book eight calls. And if we need more, and we know we're going to be busy, we do it every Tuesday and every Thursday, we book calls for those two days. And that's been a godsend for two reasons. Firstly, for the designers, it's been amazing because they can sort of schedule their week around those. And for myself, and it's been great because I don't, my days don't constantly get interrupted by calls um, where I can only slot in um, an hour of work before I get interrupted mm. by a user call. And it's made me a lot more productive as well in my work. Yeah, we always recommend get it on the calendar if you can. If you're trying to build any kind of research habit, it's the way to do it. Get it on the calendar. Okay. Yeah. That's what we do with the podcast too. Every Tuesday and Thursday, three o'clock. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it helps. We don't always do both slots, but those are, we try to kind of reserve the time and it's worked out pretty well. Awesome. Hmm. Yeah. You know what this, uh, this conversation is reminding me of, uh, give a shout out to Dennis Anders. Uh, he's a big fan of the movie, The Martian. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> at the, uh, at the end of The Martian, he, you know, he's in, when he's in the classroom teaching future astronauts or whatever, he kind of is saying like, you know, what do you do? And it's like, you just solve one problem, then you solve the next problem. And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. It's kind of like in this context, right? It's like, you just solve one thing or you learn some new thing and then you get to have a business. Um, yeah. And it feels like you all have done that in a really uh, kind of smart and, and scrappy way. Uh, yeah. And the, and the funny thing is, is um, because obviously when, when we first started out, it, it seems like a pretty niche software and it is a pretty niche software. And uh, we always say, ah, oh, we're just six months out from building uh, from having finished to build, you know, all the main features we want, and every and six months later, we say the exact same thing. <laughs> uh, and so it just, although you always like, there's going to be an end to the problems you're going to solve, or the main problems you're going to solve for the users, they're never happy. There's always another problem they want you to solve um, within your tool. Just interesting to be able to iteratively improve a, a product um, over over you know many years. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of the weirdest things working in product is that. I don't think I've ever delivered something and then not like the next day been like, oh, we could have, that could have been better. You know what I mean? It's like hard yeah. not to, it's, it's hard not to beat yourself up, but you just, it's just such an iterative and you always see new wrinkles or you had to make some concession because of scope or timing or whatever. So it's, it's good to remember the whole journey and not just obsess over one event. No, completely. It's also the breadth versus depth, right? Like to your point, look, it's a, uh, you know, there's more problems to solve. We think you're going to solve this problem and then that'll be it. But um, high class problem, right? The bigger your customer base gets, the more problems your product is solving, the more problems your users want you to solve. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a lovely dilemma. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you um, solve this one fully, which is impossible, you know, or do you try to try to solve more problems? Yeah. And yeah. uh, in our case, we, we try to in our first round of iterations, we just try to solve the, the, the problem in an adequate fashion. Um, and then we see how our user base reacts to it. And then usually a couple of months later, we'll come back to it and sort of iterate on it. Um, and uh, if it turns out it was a, a feature that people not only asked for, but actually ended up using, we, we spend a bit more time and, and, and we make it into as much of a well-rounded solution as we can in the time we've mm. given. Yeah, that's such an important discipline to maintain. I feel like it's easy, right? Like you get feedback from users of, there's a problem here, or, you know, we need a solution here. And in the course of exploring that, you start to imagine all the adjacent opportunities or solutions or problems, and you start imagining them. Um, and it's really hard to keep yourself honest and be like, let's just solve the first thing, see if anyone actually engages with it, or if there's feedback on it, and then we can get into the follow-ons. But um, it's just it's just hard to not 
like start thinking multiple steps ahead when you start getting into a, a certain area absolutely uh, absolutely and we've done that in the past as well especially at the beginning where where we've we've sort of said oh this could do this and you, you can integrate it with that and oh it's going to be magical and whatever and it turns out no one actually end, ends up using it um <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's such a trap because it's so fun it's like really fun to be like oh we have this and this and it all comes together in this perfect <laughs> like elegant little solution but you got to make sure people use the first thing or else the rest of the rest of it doesn't matter so absolutely absolutely Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.